Good morning. Great to be with you guys today, especially for this incredible time. Just want to say thank you to North Central University that you care for the lost, that you put first the kingdom of God, and it is just awesome to see you guys excited, ready to do something for God. So I want to read this morning. I want to apologize in advance to my uh, interpreter because uh, I speak Georgian and uh, have a bad accent and I speak really fast. So I apologize in advance. I don't know how to sign that to you, but I apologize in advance. Thank you for your service. Genesis chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse 2. Into the verse, just a little bit of verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now, don't take from this that God doesn't like vegans or vegetarians. It wasn't that, uh, you know, Abel had meat and God likes to eat meat better than vegetables, at this point, there was no law that said what you're supposed to bring. So all we can determine from this is it was an attitude of the heart, that there was a way in which Abel brought his offering that said, God, I love you and I honor you for who you are. And there was a way in which Cain brought his offering that was more a flippant manner in which he brought his offering. And so it wasn't that God didn't like the vegetables or the grain. It was an attitude of the heart. Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Over the last year, I've been asking myself that question a lot. A few months ago, some of you saw in Afghanistan, there's fighting, there's people literally so desperate for freedom, they're holding on to planes and falling to their death. There's desperation in a nation, and I, I have to ask myself, am I Afghanistan's keeper? Am I responsible? I mean, right now, there are wars raging in Yemen. Lebanon is in the middle of civil war. Kashmir and Pakistan, uh, India and Pakistan are still fighting over Kashmir. There's wars and rumors of wars all over the world, and I have to ask myself, am I my brother's keeper? When I see injustice in my own nation and I see people dying, I have to ask myself, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for all this? What's, what's my part in all of this? I can tell you in the beginning, nobody was asking this question. In the beginning, it says that God created man and woman in His image. And He created them to be with Him, to have relationship with Him. And we are told in the beginning, there's a kind of verse we kind of go over, Genesis 2.25. It says, and they were naked and unashamed. And what that means is they had nothing to hide. They were in complete open revelation between themselves and with God. 
They weren't ashamed. They weren't distraught. There was no jealousy among them. There was no anger towards one another. They were in perfect relationship with God and one another. And then the first sin comes in. And what was the first sin? The first sin was this. It was a lie that was told to them. No, if you eat of the tree of good and evil, it's not that it's going to destroy you. You can be like God. You can be like God. You can be a God for yourself. You can live life by your own rules, by your own standards. You can do life your way. You really don't need God. I mean, you were created in His image. You have the DNA of God. What do you need Him for anymore? Go and live life on your own terms. And they bought into the lie. And I want you to notice that the first effects of sin was not death. Death is the end result of sin. But the first effect of sin was this. It's separation. So it says that God comes down like He always did because God created us to have relationship with us. And so God came down like He always did in the cool of the night and He just walked with Adam and Eve and had relationship and fellowship with them. And as He came down that night, He comes down, and, and this is the first question of the Bible. Where are you? Now, how many of you know God doesn't ask questions because He needs answers? I mean, it wasn't that God came down and he was confused. It's like, hey, where'd you go? I can't find you. No, God wants them to reveal their hearts. Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? And where were they? They were hiding. You see, we believe that, that sin separates us in the sense of God's angry with us, so he doesn't want to be around us anymore. No, sin separates in that sin corrupts your heart and you're hiding from him. See, God's not hiding from you. You're hiding from God. And they're hiding off in the corner because now shame has come into their life. And because of shame, they have to cover themselves up because now they've got stuff inside of them that they don't want anybody or God to see. Now they're covered up. And then this sin led to separation. And notice, it's not an angry God throwing them out of the garden. It is a loving God allowing them what they've asked for. I mean, I gave you free choice, and if you want to hide from me, if you want to be away from me, that's it. The word that is used for God drove them out is the same word that is used for divorce in the Old Testament. Did you know that? They were divorced from God. They said, you know, we don't want to be in this relationship anymore. There was a divorce, and they're separated from God. And notice this, if you are not in right relationship with God, you cannot be in right relationship with one another. So as soon as the relationship with God broke down, their relationships with one another start to break down. So Cain and Abel, the first siblings, they go out and Cain kills his brother Abel. They no longer feel of connection with one another because they're not connected with God. They're no longer responsible for one another because they're not in relationship with God. So Cain kills his brother, and then God asks the question. Again, God doesn't need answers. He doesn't, it's not that he needs knowledge, but he asks the question, where is your brother? And what's the response that sin leads us to? Am I my brother's keeper? Why are you asking me about Abel? My name's Cain. Why are you here talking to us about Afghanistan? We're Americans. What does Syria have to do with us? What do we care if a tsunami wipes out an island in Indonesia? What's that have to do with us? What does it mean to me if somebody on the other side of town gets beaten and killed? What's that got to do with me? 
It's not my people. I'm not responsible. My name's Cain. Stop asking me about Abel. I'm an American. Stop talking to me about Yemen. I don't have anything to do with that. You see, sin would lead you to believe that you are not responsible for one another. Sin would lead you to believe that somehow we're different. But I want to tell you that you and I, no matter where you're from, no matter what your race, no matter what your gender, that you and I were created in the image of God. We have one Father. We are one family. We are one people. We are responsible for one another. But as sin ran through the world, here's the effect. Brother kills brother because I'm not responsible for my brother. Family fights against family. City fights against city. People fight against people. Nation fights against nation. Why? Because of the sin that leads us to believe that we are not our brother and sister's keeper. We're not responsible. Why ask me about it? You know, I I think it's interesting if uh, Cain would have given him a good Pharisee, when Jesus asked him, instead of saying, am I my brother's keeper, he might have said, who's my brother? Remember when Jesus, a Pharisee, asked him, you know, about living life, and it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as myself, and he tried to justify himself, well, who's my neighbor? Well, which brother are you talking about? Uh, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, who is this? And notice that when Jesus answers him, Jesus doesn't answer him. I love that about Jesus. Jesus doesn't answer stupid questions. (laughs) He just goes on to what really matters. So remember the question is, who's my neighbor? So what does he tell? He tells a story about what it means to be a good neighbor. But he doesn't tell you who the neighbor is. He tells you how to act in a neighborly way. And he says to them, you know, a priest and a Levite came along and they walked the other way. Why? Because they're trying to be richly pure. They're trying to be holy. They're trying to be the people of God. And I can't mix with people like that. I can't get involved in situations like that. Why are you asking me about social justice? Or why are you asking me about reconciliation? I don't have anything to do about things like that. I'm a preacher of the gospel. None of that matters to me. I just preach the gospel. And then along comes the Samaritan. And I want you to notice what the Samaritan did. It says, first he saw him. You know, if you're going to be a good neighbor, first you've got to see people. You've got to actually live among people. You've got to be with people. You've got to see them for who you are. You need to have Muslims sitting at your table. And then you realize, man, these aren't hated enemies. These are people just like me. You need to have Hindus sitting in their house and see how they love their children. And, and you need to see people. And then it says, and he had pity on him, he had compassion, and when you see them, you need to see them through the eyes of Christ, that compassion starts to rise up in your heart, but it's not enough to have compassion, you need to have compassion with the capacity to do something about it. I, I, please don't take that phrase as mine. I was on a phone call with uh, Bishop Walter Harvey yesterday, and he used that phrase, and I thought, man, that is such a good phrase. <laughs> compassion with capacity. I got to have the capacity to do something about my compassion. And he had a donkey, and he said, I can do something about it. So he put him on the donkey. I have some bandages. I'm going to put some bandages on I have some oil and wine. It was, uh, it was non-alcoholic wine, and he poured the wine on him. And so then they, he took him in, and he pays for his stay. And so, so he took care of him. He was active, but then he was also committed because he said, hey, if there's anything else he needs, I'm still here. 
I'm not done with it. I'm not just coming in uh, when the needs are great. I'm not just coming in when the tsunami comes in and then we'll see you see and hope the rest of your life goes well. I'm with you to the end. I'm in this thing in commitment. I, I love, I think if Jesus was in Minnesota today, you know, Jesus is telling the story to shame them. To say, you know, people like you who act all religious, you don't do anything. And this Samaritan who you consider a dog, an outcast, an outsider, he's the one that's acting neighborly. I think if Jesus was, in a, was here in Minnesota today, he would have told the story of the good Somali. There was a pastor who came. And then the worship leader came. And then the good Somali came. You know, he might even have really rocked your world and told the story of the good transgender Wow. Somebody that's just so outside that we would consider like, man, they are, they are the other that we cannot have any compassion on that we would walk away from. And Jesus says, you know, it's shameful that the world acts better than you. That's what he's saying. It's shameful that Samaritans who don't know me have some sense of dignity to act in a manner because they were created in my image and they're still my family. They just don't know it yet. So what does it mean to be your brother's keeper? When I was living in Laos, I had a neighbor who was uh, sick. My son was sick one day, my youngest son. And so I went to him and I said, hey, i got to take my son to the hospital. Why don't you come with me? We go to the hospital. He gets a checkup. They do some blood work. A couple days later, we go back to the hospital and he's dying. The doctor said, there's no hope. He's going to die. And I was like, you tell me there's nothing I can do for my neighbor? He said, well, he said, he's poor. He has no money. He has no car. He has no passport. Here in our hospital, I mean, the hospital that we were in literally had chicken wire over the uh, emergency room. My son, who's here with me today, one time he fell off a motorcycle with an open knife in his back pocket, and it punctured him all the way through, took him to the emergency room. They had no medicine. They put a stick in his mouth, and I laid over his back to hold him down while he got stitches. That's the kind of hospital we had. <laughs> So we're at this hospital. He says, we're dying. He said, look around the hospital. There's nothing we can do for this man. The closest hospital is 12 hours away in Thailand. If you want to drive down there, you can drive to Thailand. But he has no money. There's nothing we can do. Thailand is expensive. And I said, how much money are we talking about? And he gave me a figure. It was like $20,000 to start with. I'm like, man, I don't have $20,000. So I take my neighbor home. And we lived on this little dirt lane. And he lived in this this little ramshackle house across from my house. So I parked the car, and I told him his name was Mr. Ot. I said, Mr. Ot, I want you to know I'm going to be praying for you. I don't have money, but I'm going to be praying for you from today. Every night before I get, I'm going to pray that Jesus heals you. And he was, like, thankful. He was a, a good, staunch Buddhist. He worked in the Buddhist temple and went for prayers two or three times every day. And he said, oh, thank you. And so that night I'm going to bed. I'm reading a book, and I fell asleep. You know, how many of you know good intentions don't actually lead to good actions? I fell asleep. But then in about 30 minutes, I woke up and said, oh, I promised my neighbor I would pray. And so I kneeled down. I thought, this one is really serious. I kneel down beside my bed, and I start to pray. And I said, Lord, would you please heal my neighbor, Mr. Oat? In that moment, the Spirit of God, just still small voice, he spoke to me and said, what would you do if he was your father? And I went, oh, man, what would I do if he's my father? I thought, man, I... I, I couldn't in good conscience just let him die. I mean, if I had to take out a loan, if I had to max out my credit cards, if I got to sell something, I mean, I, I couldn't let my, I, I guess I'd do whatever I had to do but because I, I couldn't live with myself if I let my father die. And then I just heard the still voice of the Spirit again say to me, whatever you do for your father, 
Do it for him. He's your father now. So the next morning I get up and I go to his house and I said, Mr. Old, I didn't treat you like, right yesterday. I didn't treat you like family. I said, we're family. I said, you've helped me. And uh, so get ready. This week we're going to Thailand. We're going to the hospital. We're going to figure this out. So the next day we get in the car. We drive to Thailand. Me and one of my Lao friends, we drive him down to Thailand. We stay there for about a week. He starts on dialysis. His kidneys are failing. We come back and they said, okay, he's going to have to come once a month, probably for the rest of his life. And so, so we start then once a month. We're down in Thailand, back and forth, 12 hours down, 12 hours back, spending three or four days at the hospital, maxing out all of my credit cards, borrowing money that I didn't have, selling things I didn't need anymore, just so he did. And I'm still in debt today. But I can tell you, 12 years later, he's still alive but greater than that the day I was leaving I I, we live six years in Laos and uh at the end I just knew it was time to leave and we're getting ready to leave Laos and I went to him the night before I left and I said listen you know our our friend here who's been helping he's going to keep going with you I'll I'll keep finding a way to pay for it don't ever stop because of payment we're going to keep moving we're going to we're going to we're going to do whatever we got to do and he was very grateful the next morning we're getting in the car my Three sons and me and my wife were getting in the truck to go to the airport. We're leaving Laos. And one of the young kids from the village came and grabbed me and said, Mr. Olt wants to see you before you leave. So, so I run over to his house real quick. I'm like, man, i got to get to the airport. And I run in the house. And I said, is there anything I forgot, anything I do? And he sat up in the bed. And he said, one more thing before you leave. I want you to know you're my son. You're family. And because of that, your God is my God. Pray with me. I want to serve Jesus. And his wife jumped out of the kitchen and said, you're my son too. And I want to follow Jesus too. And that day they gave their hearts to the Lord. And today they have a church that meets in their house. They're leading people to faith because of a simple idea to treat the world like family. To treat the world like family. Now, your first response may be, you just can't do that for everybody. My response to you is start with somebody. <laughs> I mean, you might say, I can't change the whole world. Pick a part. <laughs> Pick somewhere. People have often asked me, how did you know God called you to India? And the honest truth is, I'm not sure he did. I was in Bible school, and I had a professor who was a former missionary in India, and she told stories about India. And one day after class, I went up to her, and I said, you're telling me there's a place with a billion people who've never heard the gospel and 500,000 villages that have, that have no church? And, and she said, that's right. And I said, somebody needs to do something about it. And I said, I agree with you. We need to do, we got to do something about it. And I said, well, how about me? She said, how about you? I said, send me. I'm ready to go. She said, I don't have any money. I said, introduce me to a missionary, David Grant. A missionary was on campus that day, helped me buy a ticket, and I went to India, and I've been there ever since. Still waiting on my call. Maybe God will call me one day. (laughs) Let me tell every one of you in here, how many of you want to know the call of God for your life? Man, you're just really seeking. You want to know what's God calling me to do. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. If you want to know what God's calling you to do, I'm going to help you right now. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all people. Stop waiting around on a place. God's call over your life is not a place. It is not a vocation. The call of God over your life is to be with Him, to allow Him to transform you and to take that transformation to the ends of the earth. That's what God has called you to. So this is the brokenness of our world. But then along comes Jesus. How many of you can say, I'm glad Jesus came. And the Bible says when Jesus came, he died. 
And, and I want you to see this imagery that when he died, as he's on the cross, the very first thing Scripture tells us when he died, it said the veil of the temple was torn from the top down to the bottom. That means God opened it. It wasn't from the bottom where we could get to it. It was from the top where no man could reach. And he opened a way for us to come back into the garden. Remember the garden? We were cut off from the garden. We were cut off from walking with God. And Jesus came to open the way and said, come back in. The garden is open again. Come back into my presence. Let's walk together again. Let's experience life again. Come into my presence again. Because before Jesus, it was only once a year, one man, the high priest, could walk into the presence of God. And now he said the door is open again. Jesus came to open the door back into relationship with God. And the powerful thing is that when I walk in right relationship with God, there should be something that happens in me transformative that causes causes me to walk in right relationship with others. And if your relationship with others is not right, I question your relationship with God. You see, Romans 8 lays out how to be in right relationship with God. Romans 9 through 15 tells you what that relationship looks like. How I act towards the government, how I act towards my neighbor, how I act towards people around me, hospitality and gentleness and generosity, things that flow out of a life that's been transformed by Christ. And I want you to see this. The early church, they're now, they're in right relationship with Christ. And here's what right relationship looks like. They are filled with the Spirit. Man, the power of God is poured into them. And this community now that was separated from God is now in right relationship with God. And what we often focus on in Genesis, in Acts, is this idea that, oh, they came together, they prayed, they worshiped, they studied the Word, they had fellowship together. But I want you to see the emphasis of Acts chapter two, verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything. Somebody say with me, everything. They had everything in common. Not 10%. Tithing Christians are the worst scourge of Christianity. It's people who just want to do the bare minimum. I just said, you know, what's the bare minimum I can get away with and still be called in this? Oh, 10%? Yep, I'm in. 10% for God, 90% for me. Yeah. They had everything. Say it again. Everything. Everything in common. Verse 46. Man, it's a good thing I'm leaving. I may get stoned if I stayed much longer. <laughs> Verse 45. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone. Say with me, anyone. Anyone who had need, not, not people who are like us, not people who speak the same language, not just people who are my folks and my, my people, not just my nation, to anyone who had need. Acts chapter 4, they are filled with the Spirit again. Look at the emphasis, Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And they prayed, and the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. Verse 32, all the believers were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything. Say with me, everything. They shared everything they had. With great powers, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And listen to this. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them and all that there was no needy persons among them. If you want to see the 
power of God's grace that's so powerful. It wasn't that people were raised from the dead. That's a powerful miracle. It wasn't that the blind eyes were open. That's a powerful miracle. But the grace of God was so powerfully at work among them that they started to live like this. I am my brother's keeper. And you know, when you're in dorm rooms, you got to be careful. If you got a gallon of milk, you better put your name on it. Right? Yeah, if you got some crackers that are your special crackers that your mama sent you, if she send you a special loaf of bread, you better put your name on it. Right? But when you live in a house, you can't put your name on the milk. It's ours. Right? Belongs to the family. So in my house, Nobody's allowed to have their special stuff. If it's in this house, it's ours. And we wear each other's shoes. We wear each other's clothes. We, we share the food. Because this is our house. It's not mine. It's ours. And all of a sudden, these people coming into the kingdom of God realize, I can't put my name on the milk carton anymore. Because I'm part of the kingdom of God. I'm part of the family. And the outflow of this, and I want you to hear me, it wasn't just that there wasn't needy people in the sense that there weren't hungry people, but there weren't people needing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They took the gospel to every nation they knew existed within the lifetime of the first church because they were committed to the idea, I am my brother's keeper. So the apostles went into North Africa. It wasn't their home. They went into North Africa. They went on the Silk Road. The apostle Thomas went all the way to India to preach the gospel to a people he did not know. Why? Because he believed, I am my brother's keeper. I'm responsible not just for Jerusalem, not just Judea, not just Samaria, but I am responsible to the very ends of the earth. It's my responsibility. I am my brother's keeper. I can't watch people dying without the gospel, without doing something about it. I can't watch somebody beaten to death without doing something about it. I can't watch somebody starving without doing something about it because I am my brother's keeper. I am responsible. There are still over 7,000 unreached people groups around this world today. 7,000. That's 41% of all the people groups on the planet are still unreached 2,000 years after Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. 2,000 years later, Asia Pacific is filled with them. Eurasia is filled with them. Africa is filled with them. Peoples who have yet to truly have the opportunity to know Jesus. How can this be? Because we're not our brother's keeper. Not responsible. It's not my neighborhood. It's not my people. Why are you asking me? But I want to tell you today, if you are a child of God, you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. You are the keeper of Minneapolis, Minnesota. You are the keeper of America. You are the keepers of Syria and Lebanon. You are the keepers of Malaysia and Indonesia. That when God put us in the garden, He put us to rule and to reign, to keep the garden, to be responsible. Now He sends us back into the earth as the keepers to say, go, 
make disciples of all nations, you are responsible. So if you don't ever hear it again, you're going to hear it today. You are responsible for a lost and dying world. You are responsible. No matter your vocation, no matter where you live, you are responsible. You are called. You are anointed. You are set apart to do the work of the kingdom wherever you land in this world. To be your brother's keeper. Stand with me just a moment. Lift both your hands just in surrender. And then we're going to dismiss, and you can go or you can stay and pray if you have time. Jesus, Lord, we declare today, yes, I am my brother's keeper. And Lord, I think it'd be good if we could just start with one. So Lord, would you open my eyes to see this week someone beaten on the road, someone broken, someone hungry, someone thirsty, someone who's never hurt. Would you help me see today? And Lord, I pray that compassion would rise up in our hearts to engage, to be involved, to share, to love, to be committed for the long haul, to walk with them in the journey of healing and life. Lord, let it start with one. So Lord, open our eyes to somebody this week. Somebody. Lord, open our eyes to a place this week, somewhere in the world that we can start to say, yeah, I'm going to take responsibility for that. I, I, I can't go everywhere, but I can go somewhere. I, I can't help everybody, but I can help somebody. So God, open our eyes this week. Speak and help us, Lord, to live with this ethic that, yes, we are responsible for one another. We are the family of God. We're responsible for everyone in this room, everyone in this neighborhood, in our community, and everyone in this world. You, the Lord, in whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given, is now tasking us to go into the world on your behalf. And so we say, yes, we are responsible. We are our brother's keeper. We will go in your anointing. In Jesus' name, amen.